<clears throat> so we've uh, come to John chapter 6. We're in a section of John where John is going to be primarily presenting signs, but he's uh, more interested in what the signs point to. And so after the sign, which is going to be relatively short, there's going to be a, a long um, amount of material kind of about the meaning of, of the sign. Uh, the, the sign that we've come to this time is the feeding of the 5,000 as well as uh, walking on the water. Those kind of get lumped together. And this is kind of an interesting one because it's the only miracle that appears in all four of the Gospels. Um, and that kind of brings up a question. Most of the material in John is unique to John. There's uh, relatively little overlap with the other three Gospels that are called the Synoptic Gospels. And so one thing to kind of be thinking about is, is why John included it. And I, I think... One of those reasons is, is that in the synoptics, the feeding of the 5,000 happens and the walking on water happens and it kind of moves on into other events. And you know, John realized that the interaction of Jesus with the crowds afterwards ha has quite a bit to say about the importance of the sign. And I think he probably felt that that had been left out in the synoptic gospels. And so he needed to include the sign to be able to deal with the, the fallout, which we're going to be spending the majority of our time on. The, the stress on the synoptics really is kind of on Christ's power to perform a remarkable miracle. That, that miracle is reported in all three. The narrative uh, in, in the other three you know, ends basically as soon as the baskets are collected. The stress in John is that Jesus is the true bread of life. Um, and as characteristic of this section of John as a whole, John's going to spend a lot more time on the significance and the meaning. Um, one thing I found interesting there's only eight words that John has in common with the accounts in Matthew and, and Luke. And, and the, the words would be hard to leave out. It's like five, two, five thousand loaves, uh, twelve baskets of pieces. Um, so the, even though the, the account sounds very similar to the synoptics, it, it is put in, in, in its own way in, in the Gospel of John. <clears throat> um, one thing that I think we do need to think about as we kind of come into this is where this is in Jesus' ministry because John doesn't deal very much with the Galilean ministry, but you know, the synoptics you know, tell us that Jesus spent the, the bulk of his time in Galilee. Um, this is one of the few incidents, in fact, that, um, that John records that takes place in Galilee. In the synoptics, we, we learn that there's, you've been a very powerful and a very impactful ministry up to this point. Uh, Jesus has just sent the 12 disciples out uh, to teach repentance. He sent them out in groups of two by two. Very shortly, he's going to send 72 disciples out in a similar fashion. So I'm just kind of trying to uh, connect us to where we are in the synoptics um, as we go through John, where it's, it's often difficult to see because there's so little overlap. And one thing that's kind of helpful to note is that you know, there were 12 primary disciples but there were additional disciples that would follow Jesus in some other capacity. Um, and we, we know that because Jesus sent out 72 disciples at one point. Um, but you know, that's actually going to be really important to understand how this section ends. And here, I, I think it might be helpful to, to actually see how it ends so that we have that in mind as we, we get there. So I'm, I'm going to read from towards the end of the chapter. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if he were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. 
But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Okay, so kind of knowing where we're headed, we're going to take a look at the, the sign itself first. <clears throat> so th uh, this is beginning in uh, verse 1 of chapter 6. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs that he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall I bre buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already knew, or sorry, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Uh, Philip answered him, It would take more than a year's wages to buy enough bread for everyone to have a, uh, a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon, Peoples brother, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There is plenty of grass in that place. And they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus took the loaves and gave thanks and distributed um, to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, and let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with pieces of the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign that Jesus had performed, they said to him, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So we're going to go through the sign itself relatively quickly, kind of point out some details just to help us understand it, and then we're going to move on as we kind of unpack the sign into the text that unpacks the sign uh, after we uh, deal with you know, the, the sign that follows right after, which is walking on the water. <clears throat> so one thing that might kind of jump out is that you know, John uh, in, includes the, the detail that this is close to the uh, time of the Passover. And that's going to fit thematically with the idea that Jesus is the uh, breath of life. Sometimes John mentions a, a festival, or, um, and when he does that, that festival is always going to be connected with the material. Sometimes Jesus is in, is in Jerusalem for a festival, but John doesn't mention which festival it is. Presumably, he's not mentioning it because there's not a, a strong connection. So think back to the, uh, the Passover and the departure of Israel from the security of Egypt. All of their needs were met. Um, by God in the desert where there's no food and water. But there's actually a lot of parallels between what we see here and Exodus. So one of them is you know, the, this crowd is following Jesus into wilderness, uh, just like the, the people of God followed Moses into the wilderness. Um, in Egypt, the people were in bondage. That was a literal bondage to the Egyptians. But the people that are following Jesus are every bit as much in bondage to sin. And God, in both cases, is offering to lead his people to freedom. <clears throat> in both cases, God is providing leadership. In one case, God has kind of raised up his servant Moses as a leader. In one case, God has sent Jesus 
as kind of the ultimate leader of his people. In, in the wilderness, we've already kind of mentioned this, but God provides for his people's need in, needs in the wilderness. There's no food, there's no water. God provides that in the Exodus. Here, Jesus is providing food in the same way. Um, and one other little thing is that you know, the, the very beginning of the text, you, know, you see that they have to kind of cross over the sea to, uh, to get there. Um, and another detail is you know, Jesus went up on the mountain which kind of reminds us of Moses going up on uh, Mount Sinai in the wilderness. So there, there's a lot of parallels. John wants us to have that in mind right now. If you doubt me, you won't when we really get into how this miracle uh, gets unpacked. I'm going to mention this but not make very much of it. There are also parallels to a, a lesser-known incident. This is in 2 Kings chapter 4. Uh, I, I'm not even going to read it, but I'll just kind of summarize it. There's an incident where Elijah feeds a group of about 100 people with 20 barley loaves, uh, as well as some fresh ears of grain. And after feeding them, he had some left, uh, is how the text puts it. It's only a, a, a several-verse-long section. But it, it is interesting that John includes the detail of barley loaves that is left out of the synoptics. And that may well be to kind of point to this incident that happened in Elijah's ministry. And... If that's the case, I think one thing that we're seeing is that Jesus very much expands on that. Elijah had 20 barley loaves to work with, which when we think of barley loaves, we think of kind of a Costco-sized loaf of bread that we cut into 20 or 30 pieces, and it could last your family a week. The loaves that would have been pictured now would be much smaller. They'd be kind of large um, roll-sized loaves. And so a, a loaf probably wouldn't quite satisfy one person. So that's the picture that you should have for the, the barley loaves. And so 20 of those would not be enough to feed 100 people. So um, you know, Elijah was able to, to kind of take that and multiply it. Jesus has less to work with. He only has five loaves, not 20. And he feeds 5,000, not 100 with it. And so there's an amplification of... Uh, the, what was uh, performed through Elijah. <clears throat> Oops, and I don't have text up for this. Um, one of the things that we see, Jesus you know, tests Philip. Um, he asks Philip, where, where can we get enough bread for enough people like this? And Philip, I think, gives a, a very reasonable kind of practical answer to that, uh, but he doesn't really consider Jesus' ability to provide. So his, his answer is that 200 denarii would not be enough to buy you know, bread for, for this many people. Uh, a, a denarii was a day's wages. And so if you kind of picture a person back then, you know, they can't work on, on Sabbath. They've probably got to work around the house and some other things. You could probably get in about 200 working days. And so maybe something like a year's wages would have been 200 denarii. So to us, this would be a, a pretty substantial amount of money. Um, and I think a year's wages now might actually be able to buy enough to, to do that. If you earn 40000 a, a year, which might be kind of an you know, average wage in, in this area, um, you, you probably could feed 5000 with that. That would be $8 a, a person. But food was a, a larger fraction of one's income that, that back then. They wouldn't have been able to get close to buying enough food for that many people with, uh, <clears throat> with, with that much money. Um, th th there is something kind of interesting with Philip's response. 
Philip is from that area. He's the only disciple from there. And so it's probably not a coincidence that Jesus picked him to answer or to ask. He'd kind of be the logical person to ask because he knows the area. He's kind of the best equipped to provide a practical solution. But it, it's actually you know, his abilities, his, his knowledge that puts him at a disadvantage because he doesn't uh, see what Jesus intended to do. Um, Another quick comment. Uh, in verse 13, they, they, after you know, everyone ate and was satisfied, the disciples went through and they gathered up 12 uh, baskets. It's probably not a coincidence that it's 12, and if John records a number, we should certainly look for a meaning there. Um, the best answer that I saw in the commentaries is that there's 12 disciples, and so there's kind of some food left over uh, for them. Uh, God kind of provides for those that minister for him. Um, I, I didn't find that answer necessarily completely convincing, but I, I don't see another one that I, I found any better. There, there, there are 12 tribes, but why, um, why point to that with the 12 baskets? And maybe, maybe there is something there. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, what does the sign point to? We'll, we'll, we'll be spending a lot of time on this, but We'll, and so we'll see it a lot more clearly in the rest of the chapter, but it's pretty clear that it points to Christ's ability to provide. Um, in this part of the ancient world where um, you know, wheat was really kind of your main source of calories in your diet, or sorry, wheat would be the main source of calories in your diet. Meat is relatively expensive back then. Kind of average people would not be able to afford to eat meat particularly often. A lot of the other foods that you'd grow kind of various fruits and vegetables uh, would certainly be a, a part of your diet, but they're not very high in calories. And so people would, would recognize that you know, if you don't get enough bread, you're, you're not getting enough sustenance. Um, and, and so bread was uh, kind of a, you know, the, the central part of the diet. That's what you, you, you really needed uh, to survive. And so that, that, that's why we kind of see this focus on bread. Bread would probably be the one thing you couldn't really live without. And just as physical bread is essential for physical life, the point of the sign is that Jesus is able to provide what we need for, uh, for spiritual life. And in fact, he provides, um, in fact, it's, it's more than a case that he provides what we need. Jesus really is what we need, as we're going to see in, uh, as we get into this section. One other thing that's, I think, worth talking about is how a lot of you know, relatively liberal theological uh, theologians would, would look at this passage. So once you kind of become liberal enough that you deny the supernatural, you have to kind of figure out what, what happened. And they, they do have an answer for that. That is that you know, this little boy kind of sharing his food was a really good example. And so some people in the, the crowd actually had brought a little bit of extra food and they started sharing it and pretty soon everyone was sharing and it turned out that there was enough food that the crowd had brought uh, to sustain themselves. And so Jesus just kind of provides a, a nice little example. Um, first of all, it, it's certainly wrong that you know, to deny the supernatural, that that's a problem on its own, but I actually find that a lot more problematic in, in other respects. Um, I, I think it's a rather fanciful scenario that there would have been enough food to go around um, and that the problem was distribution. So this scenario really only works if people have enough food to provide for themselves. Um, it doesn't work when they don't. <laughs> and um, you know, a, a God that can kind of only give you a really good suggestion isn't really much of a God to, to worship. 
But I, I think the big problem is that it, it turns humanity into its own provider. God provides a good example, but it's ultimately up to us to provide for ourselves. It undercuts God's ability to provide for us. Uh, worse, it, it removes Jesus from his rightful place as the true bread, uh, and it shifts the focus onto other fallen human beings. So I, you know, if, if you come across that, it, it's uh, definitely not uh, the, the, uh, a good interpretation. Okay, we, we will be talking about this more, but since the, the second two-thirds of the chapter really deals with this miracle, we're going to kind of consider the deeper meanings there, uh, not here. So we're going to go ahead and go on to verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined him, joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, Jesus, uh, they, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were headed. The next day, the crowd that stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, um, but the disciples, they had gone alone. Uh, then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the, the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and they went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. So, if you are familiar with the accounts in the synoptics, there's some kind of big parts of those stories that are missing. We don't see uh, any mention of Peter uh, joining Christ on the water. We don't see a mention of the calming of the storm, but we do see a detail that's not included in the synoptics, and that is that the boat uh, reaches its destination immediately after after Jesus gets in. Um, and I, I will say right now that I think of the seven signs in John, this one's the most puzzling to me, uh, why it's there. The other six, John draws meaning out of, and he doesn't do it in a very explicit way for this particular sign. Uh, it, it very much stands out there. We, we can certainly see Jesus meeting the needs uh, we're meeting two different needs with these signs, why they might be grouped. In one, he meets hunger. In another, he meets safe travel. Um, but you know, he doesn't uh, do much with the, the, the meaning of this particular sign, which I've always found a little bit puzzling with John. If anyone has any thoughts, I would certainly love to hear them. <clears throat> so we've, we've actually gotten through the two signs now, and so we're, we're kind of ready to move on. Although the um, not identical in style, John is really kind of presenting these miracles, these signs, in much the same way that the synoptic gospels would. You know, the accounts sound very similar to the way that it would be written in the synoptics. But John is really interested in more, um, in, in more than miracles. He's interested in these as signs that are pointing to who Jesus is. So now we're going to look at the response, and that's really going to occupy the, both the bulk of the chapter and the bulk of our time. Um, When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, 
What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, What sign do you do that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So, I'd, I'd like to kind of start by looking at the crowd, and we're going to primarily be looking back to the, uh, the earlier sections. So, we, we certainly see that you know, when the crowd catches up to Jesus in Capernaum, Jesus' response to them is very negative. Uh, l- let me read it. Uh, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life. So that there's definitely something wrong with this crowd. But from a very human perspective, they, they come off looking pretty good in almost every sense. And so I want to go through that. Um, first of all, they followed Jesus into the wilderness. And to, to our ears, I don't think we catch that the same way that a first century reader would catch it. Um, if we're going to the wilderness, that kind of sounds like a pleasant thing. We're probably going camping. Um, you know, we're going to drive an hour or so to get there. You know, if we spend the night, we're probably going to have about, you know, several hundred pounds of, of various supplies in the vehicle that we drive to get there. If we forget something important, we can always drive back. That's not the case in the first century. Um, you, you needed to carry everything, including food and water. Um, you you, know, you, you would have had to, to walk for, for many hours to get there, not, not just a relatively short, pleasant drive, and uh, that kind of makes your choice of what to carry you know, uh, a lot more difficult than it is whether to just to toss something in the trunk or not. So following Jesus into the wilderness to hear him teach, you know, that, that, that certainly looks very positive. You know, they, they're, they're making a real commitment to do that. Um, they, they certainly see something important about Jesus to, to be willing to follow him out into the wilderness. Um, they, after the sign, they, they recognize that Jesus is important. Um, they say, you know, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And if we, we, we've seen in a previous study that that's referring to a specific prophet that Moses talked about. There were, were kind of open questions among the Jews, you know, is this kind of ultimate fulfillment of the prophetic office also the Messiah? Is it someone that's going to come at, this, as the, same, at the same time as the Messiah? Um, but they, they, they definitely see him as someone very important, not just a prophet, but the prophet. Um, and you know, I, I think they at least think Jesus may be the Messiah. They, they certainly are, are open to that possibility. 
They, in fact, they wanted to make him king so badly that they were going to force that office on him. And obviously that's a little bit troublesome, but they, they clearly thought very highly of him to want to, to make him a king. And if you think about what would happen to a crowd that tries to proclaim someone king in a nation that's subject to the Roman Empire, that, that is brave at least. Um, you wouldn't do that lightly. Uh, you wouldn't do that unless you thought that that person could actually protect you from the wrath that would come down from the Romans on you. When they figure out that Jesus has left that area, they immediately follow. They're trying to catch up with him. That that's, certainly sounds very positive. Um, and when they catch up to him, their, their tone is polite and respectful. They essentially ask, you know, how did he get there? Because they, they realize that there wasn't a, an obvious way for him uh, to get that unless you know, he had the ability to walk on water or something. Um, you know, so from a human perspective, it, it really is hard to see a lot negative about the crowd. I think there are a lot of positive things to see. But Jesus didn't accidentally leave this crowd. He, he left them because he recognized that uh, their, their faith was inadequate, which is certainly a theme that we see very frequently in the Gospel of John. So, so when, he, when, he, when they catch up, he immediately questions their motives. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you, you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, for, but for the food that endures for eternal life. So you know, Jesus doesn't see these externals that, that we're kind of forced to, to judge people by. He's able to, to see into the hearts, and what he sees uh, is not... Um, consistent with with what we would see. <clears throat> I think the the ultimate uh, there's one thing that I kind of left out, and it's in verse two. So the crowd that was following into, into the wilderness, I'll, I'll go ahead and read this. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing uh, on the sick. And if we weren't paying close attention to the other parts of John, it would be kind of easy to overlook this. I mean, it's a fairly reasonable reason to to go out and see someone. But we know from elsewhere in John that focusing on miracles and for themselves, not seeing them as signs pointing to a greater reality is always a really big red flag. Jesus has perfect knowledge of the human heart, and he clearly sees uh, what, what's going on, even though there, there isn't very much to, for us to go on. But you know, take a look at a few other sections where we see problems with the, you know, those that kind of follow signs. I'm just going to read these for us. Oh, no, I'm going to put them up. Um, now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they, they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he knew himself what was in man. Again, in John 4, we see something very similar. After two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus had testified that a pro prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when, we came, he, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. And so w when we came to this verse, it, it's a very odd way of putting things. It's very typical of John, and we're going to see this sort of construction more. But you know, John's got something that sounds really positive in verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that was done in uh, at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. But this welcome is not a welcome that is ultimately positive as we see in the verse before it. You know, for Jesus himself had testified that he has no honor in his hometown. So it's not an honor that welcomes him. It's just an honor that's excited about the signs that he can do. 
Um, one of the commentaries that I, I read just put this very well. This is by Andrew Lincoln. <clears throat> this is a familiar Johannine theme. The people have, in fact, seen the signs with their own eyes, but they have not seen them properly because they failed to see past the external sign, which in this case was their filled stomachs. They failed to see past it to the reality to which it points. To see properly would, um, would not be to remain content with the merely earthly benefits uh, that are supplied, but to believe in Jesus as the source of all life. So the, the first exchange, um, the, the crowd says, Rabbi, when did you come here? And then Jesus responds, you know, truly, truly, I say to you, you're not seeking me because, uh, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He doesn't really answer their question. And I think the reason is that how he got there is not particularly important. That's not their problem. And in fact, since you know, walking on water probably would have gotten them even more excited about supernatural signs, I think it, would have, uh, it wouldn't have been helpful to bring it up. And so he, he, like we see elsewhere in John, he goes kind of straight to the problem. So they're, they're not seeking Jesus because they saw the sign of the feeding of the 5,000. They're seeking because they benefited personally from it, because they ate their fill. Um, it, this would be read a little bit differently in the, the first century compared to the 21st. For us, food is a relatively modest fraction kind of our, of our total household expenditures. We can kind of afford to buy whatever food we want. Um, in the first century, some of the sources that I read say that a typical household would have spent about 80% of its income to buy food. So you know, that, that would be a much bigger concern to them. And most people wouldn't necessarily always be able to get as much as they would have liked to eat. It doesn't mean that they were exactly going hungry and had nothing to eat. But they, they wouldn't have had as much um, food as they would have liked. So they, they would have kind of known you know, periods, lean periods, where they were a bit hungry. Um, you know, that culture, you know, being able to eat enough to actually grow fat and also being able not to have to work so much that you could also grow fat was actually you know, a coveted sign of wealth. Um, so food was a really big deal. Um, so it, it's a little bit more understandable that they would uh, get excited about that. But why is it wrong to get excited by the idea that God might have sent a prophet, maybe even the Messiah, who was able miraculously to be, meet a basic and important need. Why is this a bad thing to get excited about? Um, it is a real need. Um, and especially you know, when they were in the wilderness and would have gone very hungry if Jesus hadn't stepped in and supernaturally met that need. It, it's a kind of a need that, that, that's easy to feel and easy for them to see, but it's not their most fundamental need. They needed right standing with God. They needed their sins covered. They needed to love God with all their heart and with all their soul and mind and strength. They don't perceive this need, and they don't look to Jesus for it. Um, they didn't perceive Jesus as the one that could meet it. If Jesus had provided them with more food, they would have happily eaten it, eaten it. but they wouldn't have wanted anything further from Jesus. And you know, it just kind of brought up in my mind you know, the example of Esau, where he cares more for a bowl of stew than he cares about his birthright. I think that's kind of an Old Testament picture of this you know, same reality of the crowd. <clears throat> uh, 
one of the things that kind of struck me with this is that you know, a lot of uh, churches in, in the 20th century and continuing on into the 21st century have developed very effective growth strategies centered around presenting Christ and Christianity in a way that would meet felt needs. The thinking is that if you can get people into church uh, you know, to learn about Jesus by presenting Christianity in a, a way that shows how it can kind of improve various areas of our lives. And I'd like to look at how these verses would help us in evaluating the strategy. Jesus rebukes the crowds for seeking him for the wrong reason. It, it's easy to fill seats presenting Jesus as a Messiah who can gel, help you get your financial affairs in order, who can help you have a better family life and a more, more stable home, who can help you to meet personal goals, overcome addictions, reform politics, or whatever other worldly hunger people are keenly aware of. Presenting Jesus as the Messiah that the crowd wants will fill seats in a large church, but those people have no interest in uh, an actual uh, Messiah as is revealed in the Scripture. They don't see the, the need that they have for their sins to be covered, their, their, the need that they have to have right standing with God. Worse, you, a mix of some authentic biblical truth and some practical wisdom can often achieve a lot of those goals that I uh, listed out. Good things. Um, often, you know, lives you know, really are cleaned up by kind of a mix of biblical truth and practical wisdom. But you know, those lines, lives are never cleaned up perfectly. There's always little bits and pieces where people can kind of further improve themselves by more religion. And there's uh, you know, other people that, that, that need to be helped that you can kind of put time into. And there's so much in God's world to explore and study and enjoy. And the years uh, uh, pass by and life gradually fades without ever encountering Jesus Christ in an authentic way. The, this Jesus that's desired by the crowds is useful for correcting so much. He provides people with what they need to solve their own problems. You, this Jesus uh, can kind of help them have their best lives now. But this Jesus is just a means to an end and nothing more. He's not a treasure buried in a field that we happily part with everything else that we have in order to possess that treasure. This is a Jesus that we don't need to know in a deeper way. And in fact, the specifics of who that Jesus is really aren't too important. Theology doesn't matter so much uh, with that approach. You can have theology that's completely wrong. I could point to a number of, of cults that have a radically distorted, unbiblical picture of Jesus, and they're able to clean up lives really well. You know, I live in a neighborhood that has lots of people from one of these cults, and it's a nice neighborhood to live in. Uh, I'm I'm, I'm thankful for that, but it has nothing to do with who Jesus Christ is and the important need that Jesus Christ can meet. Um, and I, I certainly wouldn't say that it's wrong to try to you know, get people into church, but if you have a crowd in church that is looking to have those felt needs met, they'll, they'll have no taste for the gospel, and you need to be presenting that gospel. If it, When you do that and you've got a, a church full of people that don't um, have a taste for it, they're going to leave. And so it's very tempting in those churches to kind of tone down the presentation of the gospel and, and keep talking about felt needs. Uh, and that's, that's the danger. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> very well put. It's a, it's a bait and switch that just ends up becoming, unfortunately, bait that doesn't uh, provide the switch that's needed. <laughs> um, in, in verse 27, uh, Jesus says, 
Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. The crowd had followed Jesus looking for another meal. Remember back to the Exodus where the Israelites were to collect manna every day because it would perish by the next day. So the importance of the, you know, that perishing is kind of becoming a, a little bit more, more clear. You don't want food that perishes. You want something more substantive, something that, that lasts. Uh, and, and as we'll, we'll see more, the, the sign of the manna wasn't a sign of, in, in and of itself. It was pointing to something more. We need something to feed on from God that won't spoil. The bread that Jesus fed the crowd wasn't good enough either. As ordinary bread, anything left over would have spoiled after a, a, a relatively short period of time. Yes, you, you could eat it and it would sustain life for a time. Eventually, you'll still get old and die. No amount of bread can prevent that. And in fact, as we know today, too much bread can actually speed that up that process. But bread, just like the manna that sustained God's people, is a type that should point us to what we really need from God for nourishment. We will get this real bread from Jesus, according to this verse. And as we'll see, uh, we're not, we, Jesus hasn't said this yet, but we, we know it because the verse is so famous. Jesus himself is that bread. Um, so how does this connect to the, the crowd wanting to make Jesus their king in verse 15? We, we read at the end of the feeding that the crowd wanted to make Jesus king. The goal is pretty obvious. You know, someone that can perform a, a miracle like that may well be the Messiah that they were so earnestly seeking. You know, the Jews did not like living under Roman rule. They, they looked forward to a time when God would liberate them again. Um, and you know, the, I think you, you can see in the Gospels just how excited the, the, the Jewish people were at this time that you know, a Messiah might come and liberate them from Roman rule. And so the crowd is, is seeing Jesus as, as someone that might do that. You know, they, they looked at the Old Testament promises of an everlasting kingdom, of the reestablishment of David's throne and a, a messianic golden age. They understood that those Old Testament promises would be fulfilled in a more literal fashion than Reformed theologians interpret those promises now. A little bit of an aside that I just can't resist pointing out. Dispensationalists will see those Old uh, Testament promises and they'll interpret them in kind of the same literal way that the, the crowds did. They, they see a time that there must be a, a literal kingdom with literal Jews kind of ruling on a literal earthly empire from, from a literal Jerusalem. Um, but so you, if, if you're kind of familiar with how dispensationalists look at prophecy, that's very much how the, the crowds would have looked at it too. There's couple different levels to what Jesus is saying. At one level, the discussion is about bread, but I, th I think the crowd really is interested in something more. If you think back to the feeding of the 5,000, the text emphasizes that this was just 5,000 men. Obviously, there were women and children that are present that aren't included in that number. And why not? Wouldn't it have made the miracle more impressive to say that Jesus fed 7,000 or 12,000 individuals? We, we don't know how many. Um, the Significance of the 5,000 men would have uh, been a little bit easier to spot with first century ears. Um, that's the size of a Roman legion. Jesus had an army right in front of him. <laughs> um, and in fact, in, in one of the synoptics, when, when they're being fed, Jesus divides them up into 50s and 100s, which is kind of the size of different garrisons or different groups within a, a Roman legion. Um, when they... <clears throat> 
you know, what, what, this, is, this is kind of the perfect time to kind of begin that process of you know, assembling an army and driving out the Romans and setting up that eternal kingdom that the, you know, the Jews understood from their reading of the prophecy. They wanted to make him king by force. They, um, when, we, when we see them anxiously following him, uh, we, we see in that dialogue that they're quite eager to work for him. They're willing to assemble and fight for him. I think that, that's, that's very clear in the text. Um, and that would be even more clear to a first century reader. Um, so kind of with, with that in mind, with the you know, Jewish expectation that the Messiah would establish a physical kingdom, can we kind of better understand Jesus' imperative, do not work for food that spoils? And I think the answer is, is yes. An earthly kingdom, like the crowd had picturing, isn't going to last. This, this world isn't going to last in its present state. Jesus is offering something infinitely better. He's offering an eternal kingdom of God's people dwelling eternally in the very presence of God. The meaning of eternal life is far more than simply living forever. It's enjoying life as God intended life to be. Uh, Jesus is telling them not to work just for another version of the Roman Empire where the Jews get to be in charge for a change. He, he's telling them to open their eyes to something infinitely greater that, that he's offering. They're so excited about this possibility of uh, fulfilling their, their small picture of the Old Testament prophecies as they understood them that they don't have a taste for a Messiah that, that he is. Um, they, they, they don't see the value of you know, Jesus dealing with the sin that separates them from a holy God and that condemns them in, from God's perfect justice. If, if we look at things spiritually, that's a far, far greater thing than just setting up a physical kingdom. But the crowd doesn't see it. And I think that's what Jesus is, is trying to get at right here. So this is, uh, well, let me just do one more thing so I can kind of finish out a section. Um, for on him, God the Father has set his seal. So in the first century, seals could, could be a variety of things. When we think of a seal, we kind of think of a container that's been closed and the seal kind of guarantees that it hasn't been opened. And so if you buy a can of, or a jar of cherries and open it and you, you want to hear that pop to know that it hasn't been opened so that the contents are, 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 are safe. Um, the first century... A, a much more common meaning would be that you know, if, if a king were to prepare an official document and send it someplace, you, this would go to a different city. You wouldn't be able to hear from the king himself. You'd want to know that that's an authentic document, that it's not just you know, some, someone that's kind of written down something on their own and so forth. And so the, the king had a specific seal. He'd pour wax on that document and he'd stamp that. And that seal would authenticate the document. I think that's what's being meant here. Um, God the Father is setting his seal on Jesus in a unique way. He's authenticating him. And so I, I wanted to, to get through that before we finished because um, that kind of closes out a, a section. And we're going to continue with this uh, next time. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, I, I thank you so much for this picture that we have of what you're doing for this crowd. You've come to give your life to provide them with spiritual life. And they want so much less from them, but you're, uh, you're, you've you, you confronted them with that. You challenged them not to work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life. Lord, you've offered us so much. I pray that you would open our eyes today to what you have offered and give us a taste for uh, the greater gifts that you've, you've offered, not a, a taste for the smaller ones. In Jesus' name, amen.